The reading for this morning is from 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 25. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word of the Lord. Atheists, cannibals, incestuous. Those were just some of the accusations leveled by the dominant Greco-Roman culture against the first Christians. And so as we study our passage this morning, and really the passage shifts to Paul, uh, Peter, uh, rather, issuing um, his moral advice for how Christians are, are to live as sojourners in, in exile, it is essential for us to try to hold something in our heads, to understand, to keep in mind the social status and social location of the earliest Christians And keep in mind, at at the time of the writing of this letter, Christians were a a tiny minority in the Roman Empire. And the majority of them were drawn from the most vulnerable and despised social classes, slaves and women. Peter addresses them as sojourners and exiles because of their identity as Christians. It meant that they didn't fit in to the dominant culture. And it also meant that they didn't fit in in the social circles that they ran before. Because of their faith in Christ and their membership in the church, many of them had lost their family and their friends. And so being a Christian in those first centuries carried with it absolutely no social advantage or prestige whatsoever. In fact, quite the opposite was true. Becoming a Christian carried a high social cost, such A high cost, in fact, that one scholar recently wrote a book with the title, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? 
But back to that initial list of charges, atheists, cannibals, incestuous. You might wonder, especially that first one, how did that make any sense? Why would any smart person call Christians atheists when obviously they have a god, a triune god, who they worship? Well, the answer was that to the pagan mind of antiquity, Christianity did not look anything like a real legit religion. Because if you have a religion in the ancient world, it's clear what you have. You have a temple where sacrifices were offered. You want to be a religion? That's okay. Start your own, but you got to have a temple and you got to have some sacrifices. And Christians were weird. They had no temple. In fact, in our reading last week from First Peter, uh, Peter says, you are like a temple being built together into living stones. And so the community itself was the temple. And not only did Christians not have a temple, but, but claimed they were the temple, but they made no sacrifices. Instead, they did what, what Peter said last week, too. He says, well, what you're going to do is offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. And to their pagan neighbors, this made absolutely no sense. If we have Christians have a hard time figuring out what does it mean to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ, pagans were completely mystified by this notion. So as far as they could see, there's this group of people calling themselves Christians who had no temple, no sacrifices, and they didn't have a religion. And so that's why they called them atheists. And then there was this charge of cannibalism, that, that Christians were getting together and gathering in secret and eating flesh and blood. And this is, uh, you know, we can see this coming from a misunderstanding of the words of institution from the Lord's Supper. This is my body given for you. You know, take this, eat this in remembrance of me. And, and this cup is my blood shed for you. And so Christians, as far as they could tell, got together each and every week to eat flesh and drink blood. To the uninitiated outsider, you could understand why this would sound bad and a little sketchy. But then there was the last and most spurious and specious of charges, that of incest within the Christian community. And where this came from was a couple of places, one of which is Christians had the custom and habit of referring to one another as brother and sister, regardless of their actual relationship. And so that was the quintessential way that Christians would refer to fellow Christians as brother and sister. So you have everyone calling each other brother and sister. And beyond that, Christians were known for, um, on Sunday nights, getting together to have a love feast, an agape feast. It was, it was this sort of big communal meal um, that was related to, but not exactly the same as the Lord's Supper. So it was this big communal festival where brothers and sisters got together with it. Well, to the pagan mind of antiquity, they knew what a love feast meant. You know, they could not imagine people celebrating and feasting some kind of non-erotic love. And so to their twisted minds, this relationship between, you know, brothers and sisters about a love feast, they really knew, thought they knew what was going on. And so they said, they're not only getting together as cannibals, but to commit incest. So imagine having all of those charges hurled against you by the dominant culture. And that this is who Peter is writing this letter to. A tiny, maligned, mistrusted, and mistreated religious minority. And their neighbors didn't trust them because they didn't understand them. And they didn't understand them because Christians did not fit into the pre-existing categories. And when people don't fit into categories for any society, that's a huge problem. 
And so this portion of Peter's letter was written to provide moral instruction to Christians living under immense social and political pressure. Given that they had no power and they were subject to social opprobrium and and, and political persecution, what should they do? Everyone's saying all of these bad things about them. And sometimes the government is doing terrible things to them. How should they live then? How should they relate to their neighbors, to the government, to society at large? These are the questions that Peter's churches were wrestling with and to which he is addressing them in this letter this morning. And the social world and social status of of the first Christians is radically different from our own. You know, we, we, we're not living in the same situation as them at all. Even if you could say there's areas of our society where Christians could face, you know, de facto uh, discrimination because of their views. I think academia is sort of one clear-cut example of this. But, but our situation is really nothing like theirs. But there are principles in this passage that shape how we ought to live and relate to the broader culture here and now. And the predominant theme of our passage this week and actually going into next week is, as Peter says, how are you to relate to the, to the broader world given, given your station and status? And Peter says that you are to assume a posture of submission within the dominant culture. In the, in the words of our translation this morning, be subject to, subjugate yourself. And I understand that this is probably not what we want to hear. You know, we, 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 we wish that Peter had said, you know, like, st- get up, stand up, stand up for your rights, get up, stand up, don't give up the fight, you know. But, but, but there's just a couple things that, that we really need to, to grasp if we're going to understand what he's talking about. And the, and the first is this, that the situation of these Christians that Peter is addressing it, that there always have been and there are and there will continue to be Christians living in societies where they are utterly powerless to seize the reins of power and, and affect broad social, cultural, or, or political change in the near term. There are folks like that all over the world today. And those are the folks who Peter is writing to. They live under constant threat because of their loyalty to Christ. And so those people especially need a word of hope about how their lives are and their suffering are not meaningless, but actually a powerful Christian witness. A few older commentaries I read this week mentioned how this passage especially was powerful in places like the, the former East German Democratic Republic, you know, communist East Germany, saying, how do we live when the entire government and society and apparatus is against us? What do we do? It speaks very powerfully to Christians living in situations like that. And so that's the first thing, is that there are, this is addressed to Christians living in very difficult and desperate circumstances. And the second thing I want to say is that when, when Peter says, be subject, it doesn't mean, you know, cower and, and roll over. It, it means that while Christians fit out, they just don't fit in because of their loyalty to Christ within the dominant culture, they and we are also called to find ways how we can fit in by finding our place in the broader social order. God is a God of order, not of chaos, and so it's important for Christians to find their place even in this fallen world. So that's all my preface that I'm going to give. But there's three reasons 
that Peter gives for Christians to submit. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Christians should submit for the sake of the lost, for the sake of the Lord, and for the sake of themselves. So for the sake of the lost, the sake of the Lord, and the sake of themselves. And, and so we're going to look first at submitting for the sake of the lost. And we see this in the first couple of verses, 11 and 12, where, where Peter urges Christians to abstain from, quote, the passions of the flesh. And what he's speaking to is this strong tendency deep inside each and every one of us to, to, to do whatever it is that we want to do. And as a Christian, he's saying, you might be tempted. Now you have this new freedom in Christ. So you, so you might be tempted to go, well, I can do what I want to do. And if I do it, if I do something bad, I can ask God to forgive me because that's just his job. Of course God will forgive me. But Peter's saying that's a parody of true Christian freedom. He says in verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. And so Peter's point is that Christian freedom is is not primarily about, you know, freedom from responsibility, freedom from morality, freedom from, you know, doing what you're supposed to do, but it's freedom for serving God in Christ. And he says the reason that you need to, 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 to live lives of integrity, it's for the sake of the lost, the sake of the Gentiles, he says. Because Peter understands, especially in their situation, as this strange new sect, that the world was watching them. And when they saw Christians behaving badly, they could use that as an excuse to think badly of them and then treat them even worse. And this had, in, in Peter's time, this had serious life or death consequences for the Christian church. And, and while the stakes aren't quite as high for us uh, here and now, the principles are the same. That non-Christians are watching Christians, looking to see us mess up, and then that can be a justification used for not believing. Because the truth is, there's no better advertisement for Christianity than a person or a church community that loves Jesus passionately, that obeys his word, and that lives with with generosity and service and joy. That is an amazing billboard for the Christian faith. You might call that saint, people who are, are saints. You'd say, that person is a saint. That is an advertisement, a billboard for the Christian faith. And so when someone does that, 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 underscores the credibility of the christian message but then the converse is true right there's no greater stumbling block for the lost than christians behaving badly you know hypocritically or aligning ourselves with injustice or wickedness so when you identify yourself as christian it's it's and people know that and you wear that on your sleeve that's good that's a witness to the world but then it's like you're slapping a a jesus fish bumper sticker on your car And when you know you have the bumper sticker of the Jesus fish on the back of your car, you had better drive well. Right? You had better drive well because when you cut someone off or do something bad in traffic, it's not just, oh, what a jerk. It's, oh, what a Christian jerk. So don't put a Jesus fish on your car. You can drive as poorly as you want to. Or, you know, if you're out to eat after church and your server knows that you're a Christian or a group of church folks, you'd better tip well. Don't leave the million-dollar bill that's actually just a a gospel tract. No one has ever been converted to Christianity by getting stiffed on a tip. I don't think 
and uh, there's actually some fascinating research that was because this is sort of the reputation of church people out to eat after church is that they're really bad tippers. And so someone actually tried to do some research on this and found that actually it's not technically true. Like Christians and non-Christians tip exactly the same. However, it's just more likely that a Christian person will stiff you than a non-Christian person. God help us. All right, so it, it, and if we are Christian and we identify ourselves as such, we, we do have to be very, very careful, though, about what political leaders or social movements we align ourselves closely with because it can be absolutely poisonous to our witness if we get this wrong. And I recently ran across what is, to me, a very troubling a troubling statistic. I was listening to uh, this podcast. I'm a fairly omnivorous person when it comes to my podcast diet. And so I was listening to one from Jonah Goldberg, who he's a writer at the National Review. And he shared this anecdote that I had to look up to see if this was true. But it is. So uh, he cited this study that in, in 2011 and 2016, this, this reputable outfit called the Public Religion Research Institute, so PRRI, they did a poll, and they did the same poll in 2011 and in 2016, and they asked people if they agreed or disagreed with the following statement. And the statement was this. So same question, same statement, do you agree or disagree? Asked it two different years. So, and the statement is this. An elected official who commits an immoral act in their personal life can still behave ethically and fulfill their duties in their public and professional life. So I'll repeat that. An an elected official who commits an immoral act in their personal life can still behave ethically and fulfill their duties in their public and professional life. Do you agree? Yes or no? And in 2011, here's what they found, that 38% of white mainline Protestants agreed with that statement, and 30% of white evangelical Christians agreed with that. And just as a baseline, non-religiously affiliated Americans, 63% of them agreed with that statement. So then fast forward five years, the question gets asked again. And so the number of unaffiliated people who agree with that statement it was down to 61%. So basically the same, just slightly dropped. And amongst white mainline Protestants, now 60% of them agreed with that statement, a 22-point jump. And most shockingly, it jumped 42 points amongst white evangelical Protestants to 72% making them the group most likely by far to agree with that statement. Five years, 42 points. What message does that send to a watching world? So Peter says, be careful about immorality because not only will it destroy your soul, it will destroy your witness to the watching world. Instead, for the sake of the lost, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And this word that gets translated as, as honorable, it's the same word as, as good or, or beautiful. And so what Peter is saying is that Christians are called to live beautiful lives. Another way to say it would be attractive lives. Live attractively. And what's attractive about the church? I mean... Uh, you know, I'm a professional religious person, and it's easy to rag on the church and point out its warts and its shortcomings. But I can say this about, about this community. That if you're if someone in need here, folks are going to rally around you and care about you and love you. And 
they'll go out of your way to their way to be a good neighbor and to be friendly and to welcome you and to be generous and genuine. And I got to say, that is attractive. And so we submit for the sake of the loss, which means we reject immorality and hypocrisy and we embrace living attractively. And the second thing Peter says is we submit for the sake of the Lord. And and that's really the theme of the second part of, of this in verses 13 to 17, where Peter addresses this vexed question of how do we relate to the government? And Peter says, be subject to every human institution for the sake of the Lord, whether it be the, gov- the emperor or governors. And the remarkable thing is, is that the emperor to whom Peter is, is referencing most likely is the emperor Nero. The very emperor who, uh, according to tradition, uh, crucified Peter to death and Peter asked to be crucified upside down and and also who tradition holds killed the apostle Paul the very emperor who blamed Christians for the great fire of Rome allegedly using some of them as human candles to light up his gardens at night and so it's to this emperor and his representatives that Peter urges Christians to be subject for the sake of the Lord and to honor We have a hard time with this. You know, I I wish that Peter had said, resist the emperor, fear only God. But again, we have to remind ourselves and remember that Christians were a tiny and completely powerless minority. They had a hard enough time just because they were part of this strange new religious sect. And if there was any sense from the governing authorities that this new community was seditious, the early Christian movement would have been even more brutally repressed. And so Peter's admonition to the Christian community is that they should live as good citizens in order to silence the talk of people who would slander them with the kind of falsehoods that I began the sermon with. But he says it's about more than that. It's about more than just keeping your head down and behaving yourself and not rocking the boat or causing any trouble. He says you also should be doing good. Because when you do as much positive social good as you can, that improves the reputation of the church, which will in turn build the reputation of the Lord. And so the church has always been at its best when it's worked for the good and flourishing of the broader civil society. Christians should be proud of of the way we've carried this throughout history, establishing the first universities, the first hospitals, you know, being the first, the earliest and most ardent abolitionists, the leaders of the American civil rights movement, today being the most vocal opponents of, of human trafficking and modern day slavery. You know, the list could go on and on and on. And when the church is known for public good, It brings honor to God's name and makes our neighbors accept and appreciate us, sometimes even in spite of themselves. So if the first part of this passage should lead us to ask the question of how is my life as a Christian or our life together attractive, this part of the passage should cause us to ask how are we blessing our city and our state and our country so as to bring honor to God's name? When I think of a tangible example of this, um, I was at a talk by this guy who's a pastor of this huge covenant church in the Sacramento area. 
And they did a capital campaign, huge capital campaign, tens of millions of dollars. And the way they structured their campaign is tip, fairly typical. Usually do this, like you have three stages to the campaign. And so when you cross each threshold, it means you can do more and more stuff. And so most of the time how it works is you're like, okay, you know, our building needs some improvements. So um, phase one of the campaign, if we raise X amount of dollars, we can do this to the building. And then if we get to stage two, then like we can do all this good out in our community and in the world. And so, and that's how the professionals tell you to do it. Start with people who want to give to improve their own church, and then they can get excited to give beyond. But this church totally flipped that on their head. And they said, we're not doing a thing for our facility or our church or our staff or anything until we raise X amount of dollars to do good out in the world. And the professionals told them that they were crazy, that people in a church were not going to give to a campaign like this. And the exact opposite was true. They blew that away with, with, with people giving generously to support ministries of compassion, mercy, and justice in their community and their state and the world. And I think that's exactly the kind of, of public do-gooding, reputation-building that Peter is talking about. All right, so we've looked at being subject for the sake of the lost and subject for the sake of the Lord. But the last is being subject for the sake of yourself. So that you might become a more faithful disciple of Jesus. That your life might look more like his. And this is the hardest part of the passage. Because it says, servants be subject to your masters. And this word for servants is the Greek word for household slaves. And so when we hear anything about slavery, you know, we want Peter to say, Slaves, get your freedom by any means necessary. And we know about slavery from history class. We know about the pervasive violence that was a part of of everyday life for black people who were enslaved in this country during the antebellum period. And rightly, it turns our stomachs. But just a couple points to make. And that one was that Roman slavery and American slavery were not the same. Actually, in the ancient world, slavery was much more pervasive, but much less categorically Violent and brutal. It, it wasn't based on race, and slaves actually could own property, including other slaves. Uh, slaves could hold a whole host of professions like doctors and, and teachers, and, and it was much more common for Roman slaves to gain their freedom, especially urban slaves oftentimes were able to purchase uh, their freedom. But despite these differences, both of them were predicated on the same idea people as property instead of people. And so what's so remarkable about Peter's address, his advice to slaves, is that Peter and Paul alone, they stand apart in ancient, more ancient moral advice, ancient literature, in actually addressing slaves with advice on how they should live their lives. And this is, is, is a subtle point, but it is so powerful. No other ancient moralist even bothered to address slaves. And so what this tells us is a couple things. And one of it's that Christianity brought about a radical shift in the status of slaves within the community. And what what it also made clear and what's also remarkable is the fact that Peter takes time to address their moral responsibilities means that there must have been a significant constituency of slaves within the churches he's addressing. 
So Peter was not writing this so that masters could justify the institution of slavery. He was writing this so that the many slaves in his congregations could justify and make sense of their ongoing existence and suffering. He was helping them make theological sense of the difficult realities that they face day in and day out. And so Peter's instruction to them means that, that, that quite literally, when you suffer unjustly as a Christian and you're a slave, you are following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. A powerful message of purpose and hope to people who, been, who were told that their lives were worth nothing. And Peter is saying that when you suffer unjustly, you are doing not just what slaves are called to do, but what all Christians are called to do. Break the cycle of revenge, retribution, and violence. Refuse to return evil for evil, even when it would be justifiable. Move beyond the life and the politics of vengeance and revenge. And I think that is what the world desperately needs. And our natural inclination is certainly towards revenge, especially in the face of grave injustice. I think this is how Quentin Tarantino has made his entire career, is playing in on this deep desire, this fantasy for revenge. Kill Bill, Volumes 1 and 2, you know, Inglorious, uh, Django Unchained, all of those are revenge fantasies. A few years ago on SNL, um, Christoph Waltz uh, was uh, was the host, and they did a parody called "Did Jesus Uncrossed," and so it, it was Jesus rising on Easter to take bloody revenge on the Romans who had who had killed him and crucified him. And it was funny and absurd, but there's a large part of that that resonates with our desire to get even. But when we think practically of what does it look like to be subject? And suffer unjustly like Jesus. We only need to look at the civil rights movement from our country for profound examples of this. Think of of the movie Selma, if some of you saw that. And it was about the march for voting rights in Selma, Alabama, 1965. Martin Luther King was preaching nonviolent passive resistance as a mean for working for social change. And he was uh, like 36 at the time that this march happened. I mean, it's absolutely incredible to think of someone so young doing that. And, and so he said, nonviolent passive resistance, that's the way to bring about social change. And, and, you know, that sounds good in retrospect. You know, we sort of saint king and think of him as, as a really great person. But at the time he was alive, he was really unpopular. And Malcolm X, in fact, he called, he said, king and his ilk, he's an Uncle Tom. So he was getting it from, from, from both sides. You know, white folks who said he's an, agi- an outside agitator and, and, and black militant folks who said he's a sellout, he's an Uncle Tom. But, but King understood what Peter understood. And one is that when you are a powerless minority and you fight back, you can't win. There's this great scene in Selma where um, the, the first march has just been brutally beaten back by the police. And, and the protesters, the demonstrators, have been clubbed and gassed. And many of them put in the hospital this incredibly, incredibly brutal and violent attack on these protesters. And so there's this scene where people are kind of taking care of each other. And, and one of the protesters says, you know, is asking around to see who has a gun. Um, because they're going to go, they're going to get these police, they're going to get them back. 
And Andrew Young, who eventually became the mayor of Atlanta, is there. He's like, why do you want to get guns? And and the protester says, well, we're going to take a couple of them down with us. And he says, for every two that you take, they're going to take ten of us. You know, we, we've got, what, you know, a couple of pistols, and, and, and they've got pump-action shotguns and tanks. So from a practical matter, he's like, it doesn't make any sense. But beyond that, you know, mere pragmatism is the profound Christian understanding that resisting evil with nonviolence is the only way to break the downward spiral of hatred. N.T. Wright wrote on this passage, Oppressive tyranny and violent revolution are not the only options. Serving the true God by living a peaceful, wise, visibly good life is in the end far more revolutionary than simply overthrowing one corrupt regime and replacing it by, well, most likely another, as history shows. And when we understand this, we understand that what Peter is is saying is so true, that being subject isn't weakness. It's the strength of God in Jesus Christ. The strength that goes all the way to the cross for us and our salvation. And so when we suffer, we can understand that we haven't been abandoned by God, but that God has suffered before us, and that God has suffered for us, and that God suffers with us. Peter offers no word of justification for the oppressor. Instead, we see Jesus on the side of the oppressed. And when we suffer in faith, we do so for our own sake. Because in that, we become more like him, who is the shepherd and guardian of our souls. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.